Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 358 of the TIC Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Mom versus Lyme, an interview with Isabel Rose. My name is Daisy White, and my co-host is Rich Johansson, who is my dear friend of a couple years who has been the co-creator of the TIC Bootcamp podcast. I've had the fortune and great pleasure of being Isabel Rose's health advocate. And through the years, I've learned so much from her as she has graciously battled her journey through Lyme disease as well as through chronic depression. And it has been a great pleasure to watch how she has navigated those waters with grace and ease. Also, I've learned um, so much from her as she has transformed her journey into her own Lyme, helping other mothers against Lyme through her support groups and how she mentors mothers and how she learns from those mothers to help her own children. So now without further ado, I introduce to you Mom versus Lyme with Isabel Rose. Hello, Isabel Rose, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp podcast. Hi there. We are really excited to have you. And in addition to having uh, the Isabel Rose that we've been focusing on from uh, Mothers Against Lyme and, uh, and, and, and preparing to uh, introduce to the community, I'm also blessed to have uh, a special guest co-host today, Daisy White. Daisy, say hi to the folks. Hi, everyone. So, Isabel, why don't you take a minute to introduce folks to you, talk a little bit about your background, um, in addition to being one of the forces in the Lyme disease community, talk a little bit about what you do professionally, what you've done professionally, and then sort of tell us a little bit about your background and, uh, and your life as a uh, East Coast child uh, growing up and living in the Lyme Belt. Okay. Um... That covers a lot of ground. It does. Um, I'm not young. And what's really significant about my story is that I was diagnosed with Lyme disease when I was 48. And uh, as most people, <laughs> many people are failing terribly. I, I, was, I had prepared my will. I had two children, neither of whom were well. And I thought, I'm going to die. What's going to happen? Um, and actually, that very night when I finished uh, preparing my will, Dana Parrish, a very dear friend of mine, happened to be over. Dana is her own force in the Lyme world. She is, uh, and, and, and a brilliant author. And um, But Dana and I knew each other because of my career. Uh, my first career was as, um, I guess it's it's called, called like triple threat, <laughs> um, Threat, though, I don't, I'm not sure. I, mean, I think maybe I, I, um, I don't know if that's a good word, but I was a writer, a performer, and a singer. Um, and uh, I made a movie that I wrote and I was in. And um, it was about a singer, and Dana Parrish's husband, Andy Hollander, scored my film. And um, so I met his wife and we became best friends. And um, she watched me basically nosedive from the highest point of my career, which was when um, Vogue magazine did a profile on me. The title was A Star is Born, and my movie was about to come out nationally, um, distributed by Samuel Goldwyn Company. I had a two-book deal from Doubleday, 
And I had already turned my book, um, the novel that I had written into a one woman musical, which was running off Broadway, <laughs> starring me. And um, mostly because I, I just couldn't afford at the time to pay more performers. But that was sort of this, I had this sense like, oh my God, it's happening. I'm going to do it. I'm going to be able to take all of this creativity and send it into the world. And then um, really the disasters kind of struck, then struck and struck and struck and couldn't struck until, you know, they didn't stop striking. It was a tsunami that hit me. And um, I went from, you know, I think before the, the podcast started, we were chatting um, about my background at Yale. And, um, uh, you know, I was a summa cum laude Yale graduate. So I graduated. Right, so let's, let's pause there for a second, because it's important that we, that we give folks a context for you, right? So, so you're, um, and we're going to, we're going to bookmark your career and the development of your career, but you, you were, you were at the peak of your career. You were, you were pursuing your purpose. You were about to share all of your God-given talents with the world. Um, you were, I like the word triple threat. Um, you know, we, we can we can describe it in a lot of different ways, um, and then you had your crash, which we're gonna we're gonna get to as 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 we develop the podcast. But let's let's talk a little bit more about your background. So before you went to Yale, which of course is on the East Coast, um, and it is in very close proximity to Lyme, Connecticut, which is where um, this disease was allegedly discovered by a doctor who was uh, who was employed by Yale University at the time. But let's walk back a little bit further because you're, you're a native New Yorker um, and uh, you spent a lot of time on Long Island, um, in Eastern Long Island, which is where we believe uh, the, um, you know, the, the, um, this epidemic began. Um, and it's certainly where very, in very, very close proximity to where the first ticks um, were dragged and ultimately sent to Willie Bergdorfer to, uh, to be examined. So let's talk about that part of your journey first, because you are really the manifestation of, uh, of Lyme disease and, and, and Tick Central, where you yeah. both grew up and you spent your, your pre-college and your college years. Well, what's really significant um, about my childhood um, is that I actually didn't go to Eastern Long Island in my childhood. I, in my adulthood, I was bitten a jillion times there. Okay. But what's really significant here is that I grew up um, spending every weekend and all of my summers in Westchester County, 100 miles due south of Lyme, Connecticut. And in 1976, I was bitten by a tick uh, after playing in a leaf pile. That was a rite of passage of the fall. If you lived in in uh, part of the world, I think, where leaves fall. Everyone would make a huge leaf pile. And um, the next day, my um, I found a tick behind my ear. My dad kind of pulled it off. And, um, and that was that. It was the end of that conversation of a tick. I mean, and then about two weeks later, I woke up or 10 days later, I woke up with a with an excruciating stiff neck. I couldn't go to school. A pediatrician was summoned back in those days. The pediatrician made house calls. But my Manhattan-based pediatrician 
would never have asked, you know, a, about anything. He asked about my pillow and my mattress and what position I slept in. Um, and then told me to stay home from school until it felt better. Um, it didn't feel better, but staying home was boring. <laughs> so I went back to school and a couple of days later, the stiff neck came back, except this time I woke up in a pool of vomit. And um, I was burning up in those days, you know, you just thought, thought oh, she has the, the flu. It, it wasn't going around or anything. Um, so I was, uh, that was the beginning. And um, I, I also want to say that where I grew up in Rye, uh, well, Mamaroneck, is where the, the bay shares with Montauk, with Gardner's Bay. It, it rolls in into my neighborhood where I grew up. And I actually strongly believe that um, my mother was most likely infected, but didn't have any idea. And she's never been, you know, kind of properly assessed or to her satisfaction, to, to my satisfaction, I think so. But, um, you know, but, but, you know, so, so it's possible that I kind of came out the gate with Lyme disease, but for sure I was bitten at eight. Um, and that's, you know, and it was, it was before I ended up in Long Island. So the, so the, you know, that, that whole rim, you know, that Long Island, Westchester, Connecticut rim is where, where Lyme really took off in the late sixties and early seventies. And that's the window of time when you were there. Right. I mean, we, I, um, yeah, what's devastating is that by 1976, 77, 78, when um, in quick succession, I suddenly had allergies where I had had none before, um, anxiety, tinnitus, extreme self-hatred setting in by the age of 10. Um, there, uh, there was, and, and in fact, a very strange sort of anxiety eating it wasn't like an eating disorder. It's just that I would become anxious and vomit and without any kind of control, which I could never understand why. And now I have a, a, a framework for understanding why that, that understanding didn't come until I was 48, you know, for something happening at 10. But there was information available, but no one was connecting it, certainly not in Manhattan. And well, it's, it's devastating. It, it it is, uh, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry you had that that terrible experience. Uh, and 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 I'm gonna unfortunately ask you to build that out for us a little bit. Um, how 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 was this affecting you socially? How is this affecting you um, uh, educationally? Um, and how did you manage the challenges that these these developing symptoms are causing you, both socially and uh, educationally? Well, it's a great question. I happen to have been a good actress. And I'm also a middle child people pleaser. And um, it's funny, there's a word I now know from uh, one of my autistic children who came to me kind of late um, and said, mommy, I realized I'm on the spectrum. You know, and I said, well, you know, I, I think I, I knew that, sweetie, but I didn't want to sort of bog it down with that label and she said well you know mom it's really great for me to know I've been masking all these years and did wow. you know that girls mask more often than boys 
And um, so I think about my daughter's answer in, 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 in reference to your question to me, how did I deal? I, I, I wasn't, uh, I didn't become, uh, I didn't end up with autistic um, symptoms, though I have, it, you know, now with so much familiarity with the community, I do see frequently what I call Lyme-induced autism. Um, I did not have that symptom myself. Um, and I made it through with all of this um, depression, anxiety, I think all of a sudden I had warts covering my fingers that now I understand, but you know, I couldn't understand the ringing in my ears, uh, the shin splints. Um, I would have these flares that would sort of race up my arms, burning flares, and they would go away. I could never like run to a doctor and say, look, because there was nothing to see. Um, when my knee started hurting me, I, I was I was a dancer, so I was diagnosed with, uh, you know, chondromalacia. Nobody sort of thought, oh, an, a knee pain, Lyme disease. There just was no connection. Um, and I'd say the, the real nightmares for me started um, a little bit later, probably after my fourth or fifth tick attachment. Because by then I was in either um, Daisy's alma mater. I was Daisy and I both went to Bennington um, where I went to graduate school there. And Daisy, I don't know about you, but I rolled around in that grass an awful lot. <laughs> so the end of the world. It's exactly. called the, end of the world. Yeah. So um, probably, you know, bought on by, by successive. Is my, is my, is my guess, right? It's anybody's guess, or perhaps by um, changing hormones over the course of my life or after my child is that. I remember uh, calling my mom one day and saying, I, I think there's something wrong with my brain. How old were you then, Isabel? Um, I was probably um, 30. And or maybe 32. So like I had already been able to write the movie and write the book and I everything was ticking off and I I couldn't I couldn't remember anything. I couldn't remember, you know, my phone number. And uh, I went to my doctor. My doctor said, well, mommy's I, it was right after my daughter was, was born and probably that like huge, you know, surge in the in hormones. I mean, Daisy, you might know more than I do about this, that that, you know, the effects of hormones on kind of inciting activity. Would, would you say that happens? Yeah, I think also, you know, when one is pregnant, the immune system does a different thing. And then when you're not pregnant anymore, the immune system is back to itself. And um, it's oftentimes when people start to feel their symptoms that they didn't know they had. So I went to my doctor and my doctor said, well, you have mommy brain. You know, I mean, listen, I like, like many, many, possibly the majority of people in the Lyme community, I was gaslit for 40 years. I was told that I was um, premenstrual. I, my, the favorite that people love to give me because I was a performer was, oh, you're so dramatic. You know, which is an insult to those people who are creative. And... Well 
but there's you know, a little more there, Isabel, right? Because you know, let's you know, we we we've we've sort of touched on uh, your education, um, but I, I do want to build out one more piece that we we were we were we were working on, and that is, um, despite you being sick for your entire childhood, um, you ultimately went to Yale University, and uh, despite you being very humble about you know your your university experience. Only geniuses go there. Very few people get in, and um, and you had to have a lot of challenges with your health that you had to grit through in order to be able to perform at a high level to get into a school like that. So, talk to us about what that experience was like, because it's 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 amazing to me that you would have been able to perform educationally at such a high level to get into a school like Yale University, well, uh, despite being. Um, yeah. you know, Chronically ill? I probably would not have gotten in today um, for a variety of reasons. Um, I'm not sure I'm on their ideal candidate anymore, but um, I I have always been, Daisy knows this of me, I've always been a really hard worker. And um, my work ethic is and just sort of my sheer drive has gotten me pretty far. Um, you know, I I think that I would get up at five o'clock in the morning before a test and and uh, make sure I don't know. I, and I had and this was this is painful for me. Um, I really had an incredible memory, and that was my calling card. So. I know you want to stay there. I'm going to fast forward for a minute um, to what it felt like to be on stage. And um, I had a, I was performing at a nightclub at the time. I'm, I'm a cabaret singer. Uh, I was I was singing in a nightclub called Joe's Pub in New York. Huge sold out crowd. Opening number. It was a song I've sung eight million times, and the the lyrics left my head. And it wasn't like I kind of forgot them. And it was, it was as if a trap door opened up to my memory and I fell into, out into free fall, like a cartoon character, you know, just like, ah. And um, it happened two more times in that show. And I had always been my, like, not, not only did I have a really good memory, but I was always really comfortable in front of a crowd like that. I'm happier in front of a crowd than I am probably, you know, walking into like a small party or something like my happy place is, is, is performing. And um, afterwards people, you know, my husband said, um, oh, I'm sure it was your nerves. And again, I just thought, I know, but I don't have those like, and I was singing, you know, so, and then it happened again. It happened again. I was doing the one woman show. I actually had to cancel a performance once because um, I passed out uh, another time right before a set. Um, this was this was the end of my my career, um, which I'm slowly making my way back to right now. Um, I I had a I lost consciousness right before going on stage for an, an, a different nightclub gig, and um, I cracked my head on the floor because I landed on it. And I, I did two sets anyway. So you asked me, how did I get through Yale or get into Yale? I think I was quite blessed with an incredible 
uh, life force. I mean, a chi, whatever you want to call it. Um, and also this extreme passion I have for um, music, for communication, for learning is the thing that's kept me afloat. It's what saved me, I think, because after my diagnoses, I did what I knew how to do. I started learning. All right. So I do want to talk to you about um, about having a, you know, having a relationship with this, with your spirit and your body and being able to continue to progress despite your body betraying you. But let's 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 bookmark that for another moment. And let's focus a little bit on um, on the gaslighting piece. Right. Uh, because we, we this is an important conversation we have to have because. Just about everyone on this podcast either has been gaslit or is going to be gaslit, and it's something you have to learn how to manage when you're when you're when you're working with medical professionals because there are a very small number of Lyme literate medical doctors, and it's almost impossible to get into them, and it's quite frankly impossible in most cases to financially afford them. So our community has to learn how to manage the the general medical system, and they have to learn how to manage the gaslighting. So talk a little bit about what it was like to be gaslit during this phase of your life before your diagnosis. And uh, talk to me about um, how um, it could be that doctor after doctor would gaslight you of all people. You went to Yale University. You're, you're a very, very smart, Ivy League educated woman. If they're going to gaslight you, and call you mommy brain or whatever it is that they were they were they were calling you. Then the rest of us the rest of us are certainly in a uh, in a in a very difficult position. So talk about the gaslighting and talk to us about uh, about um, how you think folks can manage the gaslighting so they can yeah. still get the medical services that they need uh, from the from the system. Um, first of all, um, I have um, I have. A vagina, uh, and and I identify as female, and I look female. Women are gaslit. So talk to us about that. <laughs> it doesn't Why? doesn't it doesn't matter where I'm coming from. I do feel very strongly that um, that women are not perceived as being reliable narrators of their own experience for a variety of reasons uh, professionals will say that you are hormonal um that you are um i guess dramatic or needy um that was one that uh, i went up against are you getting enough attention from your husband in fact we talk about being gaslit. I think I do need to to talk about the degree to which I was gaslit and where Please. I was gaslit. Please. I mean, I was gaslit absolutely everywhere. Um, the two most significant issues here, and I'm going I'm going to say the name of the hospital, and I'm not mad at the hospital, and I don't. I it's like I'm not kind of. Um, I don't come at anyone like you know, shame on you so much as, you know, I'm asking for understanding and I would love to see a change. And I'm going to, I'm going to tell you the hospital. So I was a patient at the hospital for special surgery in New York, which is largely considered one of the great joint hospitals in the world. Um, 
And um, I just went in a, in a, in a kind of endless cycle of a diagnosis, you know, an MRI, an epidural, physical therapy. It culminated in a hip replacement and they put the wrong prosthesis into my leg. And I jumped off the table after surgery. I was 38. You know, I was really energetic and I, I couldn't get my feet, both feet on the ground at the same time. Uh, I had been a dancer, performer, um, and I um, I quickly said to the surgeon, I, I think something's gone wrong. And he said, oh, you know, the soft tissue just needs to soften. And um, I was not believed. And finally, he just said, you know, it's, it's only a half an inch. I mean, you know, it's, it's, you're, you're a pretty girl. I mean, look at, you're a pretty girl, you know, and, um, it's really possible. And by the way, the hospital to this moment does not believe in chronic Lyme disease. And the last time I was there, they asked me, you know, a 15 page practically, you know, intake uh, questionnaire. Have I ever, you know, gotten shrapnel in my body? Uh, you know, did my parents have glaucoma? It's a joint hospital and nobody asked if I'd had an exposure to a tick or if I grew up in a tick endemic area or, you know, and it's really um, important to me, I'd like to see in my lifetime, that our joint hospitals, where they're doing all of these replacements, I believe that they're replacing a lot of uh, joints that might never have needed replacement had those patients been properly treated. I, I think there's no doubt about that. Uh, and uh, let, let's stay with the, the first theme that you were developing, which is which is your gender. Um, we've interviewed many women on this podcast, uh, and we've we've almost universally come to understand as as male co-hosts, Matt and I that women are gaslit uh, in almost every medical experience that they have. Um, and as a father of four daughters, uh, I certainly see the world very differently now that I've parented four daughters than I did before I began to parent um, four daughters. Um, so what recommendations do you have for our female listeners or the people who identify as, as, as female and how they can get a better outcome when interfacing with the medical community? I think the first thing to do is to remember that our our doctors are human. They're doing their best. Um, and th that if you feel uncomfortable with a doctor, you need to find a different doctor right away. You have to trust your instinct if you feel you that you're being talked down to. No matter how many references this doctor has or how much money you're paying out of pocket. So like the assumption is, oh my gosh, I'm getting great care. I look at the bill is you know, $400 or $1,200, you know, um, it doesn't matter. They're offering an opinion and you are the authority on your body. Uh, and the other thing that you can do is um, to, to try to... Um, come in maybe as, um, as a collaborator, if you suddenly just have a wall, then you also need to say to yourself, hmm, 
I may need a different doctor because we all we all now know that you know if you have a Lyme infection, you have so many systemic issues. You're going to need to work with someone who's collaborative, who thinks outside the box, and they if they're I mean I hate to say this, but you can't have an egomaniac really, or you're you're probably um, not going to get your needs met. So I wish I could offer more advice. So, so one of, one of the arguments you're making is to have a sensitive trigger and to pivot to another doctor. Another recommendation you have is to develop a collegial relationship with your doctor where you are partnering together and you are giving input based on your onboard diagnostic system to the doctor, right? So those are two strong recommendations. Okay. Now, um, you had many, many doctors gaslight you. Do you believe that um, as someone who identifies as a woman, uh, that you were gaslit only by men and people who identified as male? No. Or were you equally gaslit by doctors who were uh, female or identified as female? I'm really sorry to report that I was gaslit by both. Absolutely. Um, to tell you the truth, a gynecologist, uh, you know, I um, uh, I think it's useful to to report all symptoms so that people don't feel alone with some of the grisliest. Um, there was a time where I had a numb vagina, and so I ran running to my gynecologist at the time. I youngest child, my younger child was, uh, had recently uh, uh, sort of let us know that, um, that they were transgender. And I, the doctor knew this, I think, I think, uh, I don't know why the doctor knew it, maybe I can, can talk about it in my intake or something. And um, I said, you know, I think something's causing this numbness, be, you know, it's not my clothing, it, you know, it's it's not the position I'm in. I think something's causing it. And she said, maybe your vagina is identifying with your transgender child. And this is a form of solidarity of sorts. And I said, are you sure it's not being caused by something? And she said, well, it's it's unlikely. Um, you know, it's it's and and I and the this same. Doctor, this is this is years later when I said to her, I in fact have Lyme disease. Every year when I return to this doctor, do you know that she says to me, without fail, oh, Isabel, I am so ignorant about Lyme disease. I I I always I I always hope that you'll tell me a little bit about it. This is a woman who's delivering babies. Now she could be ignorant once, but eight years in a row, you know, that's will, that's willful ignorance. And that was not a man. So let's talk about mindset and mindset controlling cognition, because it, regardless of the doctor that you went to, you went to many, many doctors over many years uh, from many different disciplines and many different specialties uh, who were male or female or identified as male or female. So there was just 
the, the, the response was the same regardless of discipline, specialty, and uh, gender or gender identification. So there's got to be something else going on here, right? And, and I'm wondering what your feeling is about mindset and the mindset of the doctors that you were interacting with, both from the standpoint of the way they, they perceive patients and the way they perceive patients who may have Lyme disease. And do you believe that's really the bigger issue here, which is that their mindset is controlling their cognition and they simply can't see it either because of the way they're trained to interact with patients, because of the time they have to interact with patients and because of um, a disease that does not have a definition. Well, you, you know, you've, you've really touched on two very real elements uh, two very real factors. I think that um, right now there's a greater awareness of functional medicine, integrative approaches. I am mildly disheartened though. I have, um, I do know some young people who are in medical school right now. And if you say um, that, you know, uh, uh, if you say, I, I was speaking to a, a young medical student who had a sudden heart problem. And I said, uh, and the, the, the student was a maybe 21-year-old male, grew up in um, a super Lyme endemic place and had a sudden heart problem. And I said, you know, you really need to consider Lyme carditis. And I was uh, met, you know, just with such hostility. Of course, I just backed off right away because one of the, you know, pieces of advice that I will, I, I know I'm supposed to wait till the end of the podcast to, to dispense, but, um, and it is one of my, 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 my greatest lessons is I'm not, I don't feel that it's necessary for me to convince anybody about, about this, you know, they need, they need to somehow uh, come to it. I really feel that it's up to our medical schools our and and our and our medical societies places like the IDSA you know people who set the agendas because doctors by nature do want to help but they can't help if they weren't even given sort of the skills to think about these things then of course you add on you know the um the fact that they can be sued so easily I think a lot of doctors are really scared to make the wrong diagnosis, especially if there isn't clear empirical, you know, data. Um, and the lawsuits are like a separate podcast issue. And um, our our siloization of the bodies, the way the medical system has, um, you know, there was one point in my life where I was no longer a writer and no longer a performer or a singer, but I was seeing a doctor for my, well, my vagina's not numb anymore. I just want to make sure I- Congratulations. Uh, in case I get anybody worrying about that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> gosh. Um, um, the- uh, For letting us know, Isabel. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just in case there's concern, you know, I don't want anyone to be distracted by that one. But- um, um, <laughs> no, I was I was seeing a doctor for my- sesamoids, my the bottoms of my feet, my ankles, my knees, my hips, bilateral carpal tunnel, bilateral ulnar nerve, spine, neck, 
cognitive issues, uh, Meniere's disease. So you can imagine as a singer, I suddenly went deaf. What that horror could have uh, looked like. Uh, suddenly Bell's palsy. That's nice as a performer. Half your face, half my face froze before a film festival once. I, uh, you know, just, just God, it's been a lot. It's funny. I I'm so far now from those those um points of trauma, but the, those points of trauma, of course, have made me who I am. Um, so your original question was, what's with these doctors? Um, first of all, a new generation is coming. Um, who have seen their sisters, mothers, aunts, uncles suffer. And they are um, maybe being motivated to, to, towards the research lab, towards, um, towards offices where they themselves will be the, the agents of change. And I do think that um, there's a certain intransigence, you know, when, when you've learned a certain way, there's a, a kind of brain that's inflexible. I heard a doctor once say, and and Daisy, uh, maybe have been Dietrich Klinghart. I don't know exactly. You'll you'll tell me, Daisy, if you think this is true that that uh, mercury in the brain can cause a stasis of thought. And every now and then, I kind of wonder: Do these doctors themselves have Lyme disease, and they have a buildup of mercury, and they just can't? They've got a stasis of thought. That's that's my that's my compassionate. But, but Isabel, they, they do have a stasis of thought because they have limited cognition, right? Because our, our, our cognition is, is controlled by our mindset and our mindset is going to be controlled by definition. And, I, and, and, I, and I'm interested in your reaction. We're going to talk a little bit about, again, Yale and the role that Yale played in, um, you know, in this uh, process in a number of different levels, especially when we get to talking about congenital line and um and the work that you're doing in that arena well let, let, let's again we'll, we'll we'll bookmark that for uh, uh the part of the conversation that daisy's going to take you through let's say with definition for a minute because here on this podcast um we've had uh you know hundreds of experts some of the world's leading experts uh share um you know in long form podcast um, you know, their perspective on this, um, this epidemic. And uh, we've had almost as many definitions of Lyme disease as we've had people on this podcast. We've had, uh, we've had uh, doctors shake their finger at me and tell me Lyme disease is, a, a, is an acu acute or chronic infection caused by a single strain of a single bacteria. And then we've had, we've had doctors give Various other definitions. One of your favorite doctors, Dr. Phillips. In fact, the man I think, again, I don't want to foreshadow too much, but the, the, the man who diagnosed you describes Lyme disease as Lyme plus. Uh, we've had doctors call it um, call it a polymicrobial infection. We've had doctors like Dr. Alan McDonald say we need to divorce from Lyme disease because it is a disease without a definition, and we should be rolling it back to terms like like um, Borreliosis or asthma uh, anaplasmosis or auriculosis. You know, and so we, we have as many definitions with, from the experts in this community as we have people in this community. So we've decided here at Take Root Camp that we're going to define the disease. And we define Lyme disease as a polymicrobial, multisystemic, 
chronic infectious disease. And this chronic is really important because if you do not have a chronic illness, you do not have Lyme disease. So we don't have to have this debate anymore about whether or not it can be chronic because it is only chronic. So I want to ask my friend, um, Isabel, what is your reaction to the tick boot camp definition of, of Lyme disease? And do you believe that if doctors had a definition like uh, the one that I've just given to you, that they may have been able to diagnose you who presented with migrating multi-systemic symptoms, who was chronically ill, and, and may have had the ability to diagnose you if they had a proper um, definition of this disease controlling their cognition? I think it would have been um, a significant help if um, if the the medical the established uh, Western canon medical community did adhere to your definition. Um, I know Dr. Horowitz, who, who um, we all know, calls it MSIDS. Um, in, in, in fact, I, I constantly say to people when they uh, are reporting on, on uh, somebody with, they'll say, they'll, th this is how sometimes an elderly person will, will um, be described, a grandparent, an uncle, a great aunt, and uncle. Oh, there's, so, there's so much wrong with him. We, we don't even know where to start. The minute I hear that, I, I would say, well, I, I, I think there is a place you could start. If there are so many things and you don't know what's wrong, <laughs> that's a real tip off. So um, I think your definition is, is excellent. Well, thank Let's you. Call, call up the DSM writers immediately. So, so we, <laughs> um, you know, one, one of the things we see in this community, and I even, you even hinted at this earlier in, in our conversation, is that people with Lyme disease are better at diagnosing Lyme disease than doctors are at, at, at diagnosing Lyme disease, right? Phyllis, uh, Phyllis Bedford from the Lyme Life Foundation calls Lyme disease the supermarket disease because you're more likely to be diagnosed in the supermarket than you are if you walk into a doctor's office. And I think the reason that's the case, and I'd like your opinion on this, is because those of you who have been on the journey understand that it is a multi-systemic disease. You understand that it's only a chronic disease and you understand what it looks like. So in so many cases, in a majority, I will tell you, Isabel, on this podcast, majority of the people who have been diagnosed with Lyme disease, in most cases, were diagnosed by either the person who had been on the journey themselves or by a family member of someone who's been on the journey. And, and, and they were suggest it was suggested to them that they need to consider this disease before their doctors considered it and before their doctors are willing to test them for that. Um, and I think that's in large part because doctors have limited cognition as a result of not having a def uh, definition. And those of you who have been on the journey do not have any limits and you can see what's before you. Give me your reaction that, to that. My reaction is that I just take exception with one, one ending word. You said that those of us on this journey have no limits. I I, I would guess that like me, because I always think I, the one thing that uh, 
my, my parents probably told me a million times that I was exceptional. And the one thing that I've learned in my life is that I'm not exceptional. Well, I'll, 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 I'll start with your parents, but we can debate that later. That I represent many people. And um, I was raised to revere doctors. Um, I'm from a traditional Jewish family and sort of the punchline to a lot of jokes that I grew up with, but like, who doesn't want their son to grow up to be a doctor or my son, right. the doctor, my son, the, it was you and you, you know, you revered your medical experts. My parents served on boards and raised funds for their doctors. I actually had tremendous faith. And one of the hardest things for me to do in my life was to reject my doctors. Um, and it was a transformation that is common to most Lyme patients. And it's what sort of, you know, builds this great grit that we all end up with because, you know, if we haven't been broken by it and there are those who unfortunately are broken, um, we are made, you know, we are just made, you know, more persistent, more creative, more imaginative in how we will heal ourselves. And that's because we didn't have an option so it, you know, it's not it's not like oh we just are limit limitless. I, we we become. No, no, no. You, we are limitless. You are limitless. You are exceptional. But and 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 I, and I have to again compliment you because you you took this to the next area that I wanted to go with before I asked you the question, which is on one side of the coin we have. Uh, doctors who have cognitive limitations as a result of working without a definition. And on the other side of that relationship, we, we have the cultural limitations that we all have, which is doctors will make us better. Doctors have all the answers. Doctors will have the pill. And as a result of being set up, we do not take responsibility. And again, responsibility is not a dirty word. It means respond with ability but we lose the capacity to respond with ability and to have a healthy relationship with a medical professional because we are culturally and I think educationally put in a position where, um, where responsibility is a dirty word and we're not given the tools to cognitively understand that we can respond with ability and we have an onboard diagnostic system and we have the ability to partner with medical professionals to together get to a point where we can diagnose and uh, come up with a treatment plan. Yeah, I mean that's what is required. All right, so let's let me let me. I have a couple more pieces I want to discuss with you, and then and then Daisy's going to take you through your uh, your diagnosis and your treatment journey. Um, can you give us a list of all of the symptoms that you have, right? Because one of the challenges that we have in the Lyme community is not only uh, are we are we gaslit uh, because of our gender or gender identification? But we're also gaslit because uh, and, and because of a lack of a definition. But we're also gaslit because we have these migrating symptoms. We have multiple systems and we have migrating uh, symptoms, and it almost looks like 
there she comes again. She's got another problem. And it's not even the same one that she had before, right? Because this is a multi-systemic disease and it is a migrating disease. So can you give us just a an outline of all of the symptoms that you presented with to doctors before you were diagnosed? Okay. Yes. And right before I redo my list, I, I must tell you a quick story. Um, and that is that I kept going back to my... Um, my physiatrist. That was a word that I, I didn't even know there was a profession for someone who diagnosed <laughs> sends you elsewhere, but you know, that's, so my physiatrist was a, a lovely woman, beautiful woman. She looked like a supermodel and friendly. And I would come in uh, and she'd say, okay, Isabel. So what's wrong now? And I'd say, well, my, it's my neck, my hip, and um my my elbow and she'd say okay so but which one is the worst and i say that no they're all really bad in fact i'm also leaving out my foot um you know my foot and um and you know I, you know I, I don't know my head and um and she'd say well we know it's one thing at a time so i'd say but why and she would just look at me and say, Isabel, <laughs> because you do need to choose, you know, like this was some joke. Um, and uh, so there you go. I, that just, you know, just, just like right to your point, these migrating, you know, and I, I had, um, these are different, these were different things that I was told that I had degenerative disc disease, tendonitis. Uh, depression, anxiety, sensitive skin, allergies, PMS, mono, middle child syndrome. <laughs> Those are just things I was told. That's not what I, you know, my symptoms. So that's not wrong. Um, I mean, that's wrong. As far as my symptoms, I had thyroid issues. Um, I, I had drenching, drenching sweats. I had um, cervical lesions all over my cervix. I had um, sesamoiditis. I had Munera's disease. I had bilateral carpal tunnel, carpal tunnel syndrome, bilateral ulnar nerve syndrome, spastic bladder, heart problems, eyesight problems. Um, I think I mentioned the Bell's palsy and um, disorientation, uh, difficulty with word recall, which I still struggle with. Um, and the inability to think, um, successfully, what I want to say is, um, sort of as a writer, let's say you're solving a plot, you're, you're in a, in, you have to think, I call it, um, kind of vertical thinking from high up to way down deep. You have to come up with an idea. I could really only think horizontally. And at that time, um, I actually left sort of the thinking world and I worked as a, as a, a, a personal organizer. You know, it was the only thing I could do because I could only interact with what was in front of me uh, just to kind of just talk about like, you know, where I was before I received treatment. And, and, and obviously I'm here on your podcast. So a lot has happened to transform uh, to transform where I was to, to enable me to be where I am now. 
I'm going to ask you to pause there because Daisy's going to take you through that portion of your journey. So let's 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 so so to 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 highlight now this transition that Daisy's going to take you through. Um, you you said that you were diagnosed at 42 years of age, so you suffered. Oh, 40. I'm sorry, 40 years of age. So you suffered likely 40, if not 40, at least 32 of your 40 years on Earth at that point. Um, and I'm, I'm now going to turn you over to Daisy, who's now going to take you through your diagnostic journey and your treatment journey. Okay. Um, so, um, in some ways, I would like to possibly also include because Isabel is is so cognizant of uh, children and mothers against Lyme that there is an aspect of her journey that includes her diagnosis uh, and all of the different pitfalls through the beginning of her diagnosis, as well as both her children. And I'd like to include that, although this is not their story, it is her story, but I know how incredibly prevalent and important that part of the journey is to Isabel's diagnosis and to Isabel's journey. So I want to give Isabel permission um, to not just talk about her journey and her misdiagnoses, but her children's and, and sort of uh, the generational conversation of Lyme disease, the vertical transmission of Lyme disease, this gives me chills when I say it, that she is so well aware of, you are so well aware of, and that you have lots to say about. So I'd like to open the conversation about your diagnosis and all the different misdiagnosis, all the different doctors that you saw and that you have seen and and I want you to also include your children in this conversation. Thank you, Daisy, because um, that is the salient piece of how I came to understand my diagnosis. Um, my firstborn, um, born in 2001, <clears throat> so I was, I was obviously already very sick at that point, um, except that I was, I was sort of still kind of, I hadn't completely crashed. I was carrying on. She, um, by two, I began to worry, is she on the autism spectrum? She didn't want to walk on sand. And I had that immediate panic. Oh my God. And uh, I kind of looked in the pool one day and she was bobbing up and down and I went and grabbed something and she kept bobbing up and down like 45 minutes later. And I said, I think that might be ADHD. And what does this mean? Um, so I think that she was already manifesting symptoms before at four, before she was bit by a ticket four. I called the pediatrician. I said, um, you know, what should I do? Should I send the tick somewhere? She said, that's all bullshit. And if you see a bullseye rash and uh, flu-like symptoms, bring her in. Otherwise, you forget about it. I forgot about it because there were neither. You're familiar, both familiar with this story. She then, at the age of four, so she, right before this, she had had her, you know, her ERBs and scored in the one, 99th, 100th percentile. And all of a sudden, my child began to have extreme sensory issues. Um, 
enormous anxiety attacks, just, just panic attacks. I, I couldn't figure out what happened. Um, I took her to therapists who said that um, I had been divorced, but I was divorced very young in, in my daughter's life, and which, to which I attribute Lyme disease as the cause of divorce. My husband was an avid outdoorsman and was annoyed that I couldn't keep up anymore on the hikes and was frustrated by my depression and, uh, and to this day does not believe in chronic Lyme disease, so his child's life has been marked by it. Um, Lily, uh, my daughter was um, hospitalized when she, her knee blew up one morning and um, pediatric uh, orthopedist I took her to, you know, sampled the fluid and I said, wait a minute, you know, my daughter was bitten by a tick in, in October. This was now May. I think knees, I think knees, isn't that Lyme disease? And he, you know, he just said, you know, I'm not some quack, you know, we don't diagnose that way. So he, um, she was hospitalized. They cultivated the, the, the culture of the fluid and sure enough, it was Lyme disease. And I thought, thank God, this is great. We know it's wrong. So they gave her two weeks of antibiotics, um, which obviously on this podcast, you're aware that, you know, if she was bitten in, in October and, and treated with two weeks of antibiotics in May, that that would never be enough. And I, it is my firm belief that she was born with it and that that bite sent it into hyperdrive. Um, and then, you know, so the, the avalanche began with my firstborn and then there was the, um, and then there was my next pregnancy where I found out at my 36 week sonogram that the uh, baby had failed to thrive in utero. And I was sitting on the, on the table um, in the sonogram, you know, in the office and I, I, I had to meet a friend for lunch, you know, so I, I was like, well, what do you mean? What do you talk about? Well, there's been a failure to thrive. I thought to myself, failure? Well, I, you know, I'm a Yale graduate. I'm a published author. I don't, you know, listen to me. I don't have time for failure. Like, what, what, what does this mean? She said, well, you got to come back tomorrow for another sonogram. And I said, well, I don't even live near here. I don't, you know, what happens if I don't come back? And she said, yeah, well, the baby could die. And I, all of a sudden I understood um, a, crisis, a crisis was happening. And it was, um, I, I then did give, give birth. I induced my own labor, actually. I, I took some herbs that I had sort of heard might bring on labor, and they did. Um, and I was, um, I was, I didn't have an epidural, and I felt the head come out too small. Um, I, I knew from my other child what a large baby's head was. So my child was born with microcephaly. And I had to ask myself, okay, well, what happened here? And it was that mission of trying to piece together that, you know, the, the diagnoses then went on, um, the autism spectrum disorder, the expressive receptive language delay, the uh, pans, pandas, pots with my other daughter, Picos, 
I want to say that my um, my younger daughter's gender journey is, you know, it's it's either, you know, not related at all or totally could be related. This is an area where I really would love science to step in and take a look. I do hear from quite a significant number of women because they just find me that they're noticing this as um, sort of a companion issue. And, and, you know, I don't know whether it's related to um, the Lyme I, I can, or to Bartonella or to some other thing or to being, I don't have any idea, but I do see it. But, you know, I was having my health tsunami, the children are having their tsunamis. Um, when Dana, and so I already even knew that my younger daughter had had Lyme disease. I just, it never occurred to me that what she was going through, her eyes weren't working. She couldn't concentrate. And this, um, it didn't occur to me that it could have anything to do with Lyme disease at, or, or what happened when I carried them. You know, again, shouldn't my Park Avenue gynecologist, OB, have, have told me? Um, so Daisy, yes, I, I, it's not that I backed into my diagnosis, which many, many women do. Um, I was devastated that my children were struggling. And as I began the podcast saying, I, um, I kept having these seizures. And so I, and unfortunately, everybody who's had one knows that, you know, you can't, you can't decide how you're going to land. And um, maybe the second to last one I had was uh, on a subway. And I began to understand that um, I could be on the platform and it could be the end of my life. Um, or I could um, sustain brain damage. You know, I began to understand that I might be incapacitated. And again, I want to just say, you know, we haven't even gotten to the fact that I run a support group for women, for moms, but um, many of those moms report a real panic. What if I'm unable to take care of my sick children? Um, so my, my, my quest led um, by accident, Dana Parrish diagnosed me. And I said, no, Dana, that's sweet. But the one thing I know I don't have is Lyme disease. You see, my doctor said no. And she said, Isabel, let me see your records. And there were there was a, a positive CDC uh, diagnosis that my doctor ignored because he just said they're always wrong. And he tested me again. The next one came back equivocal. So he just ignored it. And in fact, so Dana Parrish is the person who introduced me to, to Stephen Phillips, Dr. Phillips. And he said, I, I don't even need to wait for your blood work to come back. You have a CDC positive right here. Um, and uh, I confronted my doctor and he said, you're gonna let some quack with an office in, a, in the middle of the woods, you know? Tell you you got some some crazy thing. You're gonna take doxycycline. Yeah, good luck if you don't come running to me if you get a sunburn. That is what my doctor of of 14 years said to me. So, Isabel, um, two things come to mind, and one is, you know, did did your diagnosis, which you say was at 48, and 
what was going on with your children kind of correlate? Did you figure it all out together or was it, you know, was it uh, staggered? And, and how did those puzzle pieces come together for you? I was, um, I think probably in that appointment, that initial appointment with Dr. Phillips, um, that was the first time that I, I remembered that I was bitten by a tick when I was eight. So um, there was at that time a kind of like psychic bomb that exploded. And I liken it sometimes to um, somebody who found out that they were switched at birth. You know, they were raised by one set of parents, but then they suddenly discovered they have another. All of these things I had learned about myself over the course of my life had to be reassessed and the whole narrative of my life had to be re reassessed. And I began reading. And so it wasn't right away. I think right away, I thought this must have impacted my younger child with the failure to thrive in utero. I even asked at that very first appointment, no, I didn't even ask. He, um, the doctor actually said, you know, I have a number of patients who are gender dysphoric. I mean, I don't, I also don't, I know that, you know, he doesn't, he's not a specialist in that field and wouldn't ever say that there's any definitive correlation, but I remember it did come up so that that's where I got the idea. Oh, I carried these children. Um, I then started reading Daisy. I mean, of course I watched Under Our Skin, but I read and read and while I was reading it it uh, it all came to it came together in in little bits but you know how the memory works the memory is funny so that you can remember 12 things that happened over the span of your life at the same moment you know like it's like a giant rolodex can happen it's funny because as a writer and i um daisy knows i've written a memoir called um from the mother born and you're limited in language, you know, you have to just write about one thing that happened. You, you can't act, you can't, you can't actually capture the way the mind connects dots. But I began connecting things from my childhood, like a, like a friend who suddenly became anorexic after a hiking trip in Switzerland. Or um, in one, in one case, Daisy, um, I remember Stephen Buhner's, one of Stephen Buhner's books on Bartonella, and he wrote that you know, he wrote about Bartonella rage. And he also wrote that um, osteomyelitis could be caused by Bartonella. And two things happened. One, I began to think, oh, my mother had a really hot temper back, back there in childhood. And, oh, I had a sister who had osteomyelitis and some learning differences. And, um, and obviously had ADHD, but back then we didn't have those words. We, we, you know, you were either a dreamer or you were hyperactive. Like we just didn't have diagnostic words um, in the seventies. And um, I, all of a sudden I, I started to piece together that um, there could be a case to be made. Should I feel like making it that perhaps my own mother was infected and that we all either got it from her or acquired it ourselves. But that line of thinking made me then think about my own children. And, and then I began to see all of my neighbors. Oh, 
the mom and dads, I was thinking at that point, Jesus, I don't want to grow old because everybody I know has Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, ALS, cancer. Jesus Christ, what's with the neighborhood? You know, what, what? and then, you know, uh, the, the parents had problems. The kid, I started seeing the generational span and I couldn't stop seeing it. I, I still can't. I can't stop seeing it. I'm seeing it all over the place. So that is very much how the diet, then, and then all of a sudden I just said, oh my God, the kids. And um, I got them tested. And, and um, you know, for, for my older daughter, of course, we knew that she had Lyme, but, you know, oh my God, that panel lit up with <laughs> mycoplasma pneumonia. She'd been on steroids for quote unquote asthma. You know, she can have asthma. Um, you know, she just the the list of of in in the, in fact the list of things my children were misdiagnosed with, and also that I, I was told by one doctor, and I, I think I forgot to get back to this. I was just told by a doctor that my daughter's behavior was a sign of my divorce, um, or that perhaps I should think about my mothering skills. So this leads me to ask, you know, a couple questions and you can answer them in, in, you know, your own order, but how many different diagnoses do you think you all had and what are some of the bullet points and how many doctors do you think you all had or how many doctors did you see collectively? It's an uncountable number. Um, I and, and so that's the answer. Um, the different diagnoses were OCD, ADD, ADHD, uh, later pans, pandas, POTS, PCOS, um, expressive receptive language delay, um, dyspraxia, autism spectrum disorder. Tika, tell you help me with this one. Trichotillomania. You can one you say it? Trichotillomania. that's um pulling out your eyelashes. Um, um rashes, you know, uh, eczema. Um those are those are the greatest hits. And and of of course, um, the bipolar disorder diagnosis um, for one of my children, um, along with um, during um, around the time of COVID, after after her fourth infection with COVID and a concussion, um, an experience with uh, multiple psychotic episodes. Um, again, I. I share this because many of my mothers are dealing with this as a, a child who's in a psychotic state. And, you know, that's actually like the state they're in. Um, I'm not, I'm sort of not being sort of dramatic, you know, or floral in, in the description, like they're disassociating, they're hysterical. Uh, some, some of my mothers actually are unfortunately, you know, being attacked occasionally by their children who are out of control. I mean, um, bodily safety is, is a matter I'm, I'm, I'm asked to, you know, offer counsel on 
pretty freak, pretty regularly. In in my own case, that was not an, an issue, Daisy. But um, yeah. I'm sure, you know, this is. Um, so I'm I, I'm sorry. Just thinking, you said it. You know, that's a that's a pretty intense list. My children are 14 now and 21. Um, and, you know, they're dealing with issues like, will they ever be able to have children? Um, that That's a pretty uh, significant um, sort of thing to be grappling with at their young ages. Um, and that hurts me a, a lot. You know, I mean, I just have to take it in. I don't know that things hurt me. They just are a fact of what we live with, along with things like, how will I educate my child? How will my kids stay in school? This isn't, again, it's so, so common to the population that I work with. How, you know, they can't think straight. You know, my, 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 Again, Daisy knows my daughter how how extremely smart my my daughter is. One of my children is just a brilliant girl, and you know, junior a junior Phi Beta Kappa at at her college. I'm super proud of her and hanging on by a thread to to stay in school because when she is sick, that girl cannot function, and. Um, our university healthcare systems are not set up to understand Lyme. These kids are coming in; they're they're uh, engaging in in self harm. You know, cutting frequently. They they don't know how to handle their symptoms, and they're being if they're being asked at these at these university healthcare uh, centers, do you feel like you're going to injure you know shoot somebody? Do you think you would kill somebody or kill yourself? If the answer is no, you're generally handed a pamphlet on mindfulness and told to call a provider in your in your network in your insurance network and we're that's why i really call upon you know the hospitals the healthcare our safety nets are have a lot of holes in them a lot of a lot of holes in them so isabel you say that the first diagnosis was by Dr. Phillips. And then sort of at that time is when you had this kind of almost kind of like your life flashing before your eyes, where you saw the, you know, the amalgam of your entire history and family. Um, and so at that time, did you go into treatment with Dr. Phillips? And what kind of treatment did you begin? And at that time, at the same time, did your children go into treatment? And what kind of treatment was that? Okay, part one, me. Um, I immediately, um, Dr. Phillips um, is a very good, strong believer in um, an antibiotic oral root treatment. Um, he had me, um, doing pulse therapy uh, with variety of antibiotics. Um, at the time, I think I also took Mepron and um, possibly fluconazole. I'm trying to remember. It was a like a, a trio of things that I would do every three weeks and stop for two weeks and start. I wanna say that, you know, within weeks, the brain fog lifted 
and I, my arthritis lifted. I just, it was like, it was, it was unbelievable how immediately I responded. Um, I then in short order did take the kids, um, I believe up to Ken Ligner, Dr. Ligner and Pauling, who is a very thorough diagnostician and was able to get, we were able to get our arms around the children. And in fact, my husband, um, um, we, at a certain point, I think one of the children or both were with Dr. Elena Frid in New York City for, for a, a brief time. Um, and the, they did not have quite as successful an experience as I did. Um, and that's, and that, and their lack of success with the traditional route of antibiotics is what pressed me on Daisy. Um, to look elsewhere. So um, my kids couldn't handle the antibiotics and we're continuing to fail. And so I, I, it's, it's as if we were like a broken, they were like broken cars on the side of the road. And I thought, how am I gonna get them back on the highway? In a kind of solidarity, I stopped all of my antibiotics. I studied herbal medicine. I went to Ottawa and I studied with Stephen Buhner's um, partner, um, McIntyre is her name, um, Julie McIntyre. And yet, you know, I, I couldn't seem to have the magic touch. I then found um, uh, a practitioner who diagnosed kinesiologically. And that was um, really, really game changing because she didn't need to take blood work. And so I could take my needle phobic children to get diagnosed and treated. She treated with low dose um, immunotherapy and she used various lasers. Some of them were really great. Some of them didn't do anything. She also recommended um, many, many, many supplements and which we still take many, many supplements. Um, and of course the lifestyle changes that I really do firmly believe are helpful. You know, figuring out how to get a full night's sleep is is really important, um, and and something that's really elusive for a lot of Lyme patients, and and has tremendous repercussions. How to clean up a diet you already thought was clean, and to consider everything. You know, I, I didn't believe at all that EMFs could be harmful. For me, they they weren't, but. I know Lyme patients who would have nonstop headaches in New York, you know, in cities where there, you know, where there was too much exposure. So it was through that doctor that I, you know, I even was, a, I tried an amp coil that, that was not a good treatment for me, but I'm, you know, I'm saying I really had to figure out how to cure my children without antibiotics. And, you know, I was terrified. And then we moved to California in the middle of the um, pandemic and I, um, I didn't know what to do. And uh, I was introduced to Daisy at the time. And um, Daisy has really continued to educate me um, in regards to the, the many different ways that you can approach this disease and this infection and all of its sort of co- syndromes and, and infections and, and, you know, the, the mold issues, the, um, 
yeah, the, the companion problems that we all know about. Um, and that's been uh, extraordinary. And whether it's doing IV treatments, or, um, I mean, uh, I still I still have to say that though I um, I see different practitioners for different for different perspectives. You know, like I, I try to keep it really open, um, and, and and also practitioners who are um, sort of preventative. Their focus is on prevention, which I which I'm a really big fan of. You know, like getting ahead of the crisis. Um, that's been um, something that I'm eternally grateful for, Daisy, and that we continue to look for ways to help my kids. And um, um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm a huge fan of, of Dr. Dietrich Klinghart. And, you know, pe people think like, oh, he only, he's going to give you a, a, a tincture or, you know, some super out there treatment. You know, he actually put me on a one time a very strict antibiotic course to handle something that was a problem for 10 years and he managed that symptom. So, you know, different doctors have all things in their toolkits. And that's why, you know, I, I think I should have said this earlier, um, Rich, to your sort of question about sort of what I how I would guide people now. I guide them to get um to get a broad view and to learn options and that if one option doesn't work don't first of all give something a chance you know like you you, you know at the first hurts don't don't you know don't jump off the boat you might need to adjust the dose you know maybe you got a micro dose you're saying maybe it's too much or maybe the wrong antibiotic you know but you know, so be patient. If you determine that the treatment is no good, then, you know, there are a lot of different options out there and ways to, to approach having a manageable life. And that is, I think right now at this time, the best that we can do until research steps up. But what a beautiful account. Um, so would you be able to tell us for yourself and for your children too, um, what kind of gains you have made um, in this very long and ardu arduous journey, if there are gains that you can point to for yourself and for them and improvements and and what what things might be responsible for some of these gains i think the very fact that i have a fully completed manuscript about my experience um that i was able to think clearly and realize this book is called from the mother born because the news that i need to share with the world is that this infection is congenital and has really really a myriad of consequences on generations. Like I decide, you know, I almost feel like Paul Revere. <laughs> In the fact that I could think clearly through 375 manuscript pages is um, a great testament to the healing journey that I've made. And um, I made a lot of that with you, 
Daisy, um, and with your guidance, but I don't want people listening to this podcast to think, oh, I don't have access to those people and I could never get in and that, you know, I won't be that person who was able to finish a project. I don't, I don't believe that at all um, because a lot of the things that have helped, um, well, some of them are really out, outside the box. This is true. Um, and some of them are not, you know, I, I had to be really brave for me and try the antibiotic, uh, the IVs. I, that was like a, something I was very scared of. The thought of putting something right in a vein was scary. And I, there have been times where um, some of those treatments leave me kind of flat on my ass. And what, I, what I've discovered, my great relief is that um, I really am able to keep going. Like, you know, you could be flat out and just think it's all ending, except it isn't ending and it just doesn't end. The body is just kind of miraculous. Mine, mine has been, I have a lot of gratitude for this body of mine. Um, that was part of my journey uh, towards healing was to stop being so furious at my body, especially my brain, you know, um, and conquering the, the anger is, is a, is a really big piece of my healing, um, act. I want to say that I, uh, someone else founded Mothers Against Lyme. Dr. Jane Mark and Bruce Fries founded this group called Mothers Against Lyme, uh, but they needed somebody to run it. You know, I I, I just thought they need some, somebody kind of bossy and good at good at stopping people, you know, cutting people off. Like you guys probably want to cut me off, but um, um, you know, I just knew how to run a meeting because because uh, I because I do. So I was like, oh, I'll run this, I'll run it, and. I realized that my special, um, my ability towards sort of for the community, I'm best, I call it direct to consumer. Um, you know, some some people are gonna, their best contribution will be writing a check for research. Some um, is um, um, doing like tick cleanups in their community or, you know, through education. I'm, I'm just best, working with people um it's funny i think daisy you and i share that don't we um, yeah on the front for me but yes <laughs> on the what for you on the front line <laughs> well, you know we we are i i think of myself all often um on the trenches you know which just you know to to clarify this um through project lime who god bless them pays for it all and handles all the social media for me you can sign up for one of my Zoom support groups and um, I support mothers. And it's not because I don't wanna support like the whole entire community. Um, I just, you know, there's only, I, I just can only do so much at this one time. And it's a, it's a lane that I just understand and that um, a lot falls on a mother's shoulders. And- yeah you know, mothers are the ones who are most observant usually of their kids and, um, and just don't give up. Like they just keep, keep going. And um, I, it's really been the most healing thing of all. Um, yeah. Now, Isabel, I, I want, I know that um, Rich and you are going to talk a lot about the transformation piece. And I, I just want to take a moment um, and put a, 
a little hold there, like Rich likes to say, but I just want to back up a minute because he and you are going to go into that at length and I want to hear all about it. But one of the things I'd like to hear about still for you and for your children is what, what's that? The healing. I forgot that part. No, no. I just want to know what are some of the things that worked? I mean, you know, uh, my experience as a, as a Lyme advocate, as a health advocate is that no two Lyme patients do uh, have the same response or, or, you know, the same transformational uh, healing with the same treatment, (laughs) which is maddening for doctors, for patients. They're always saying, well, you know, what did you do? And what did you do? And then as an advocate, they come and say, well, so-and-so did this and -and so-and-so did this. And as well, that's very well and good, but I don't think it's going to work for you. And so, but I think we learn from each other by learning what's out there, what happened um, to be good for you or good for your kids. And so I'm always really interested in the things that were transformational for you and the things that you know, you know, and I know there's never one thing People are always like, what's the one thing that got this person better? There is never one thing. Um, but I'm interested in the things that did move the needle for you and your okay. kids. Um, because there were multiple fronts that we needed to tackle, Daisy, I have to almost break it up into um, like our emotional neuropsych area, then maybe the GI piece, um, um, and then sort of body parts that needed aid, you know, because there's so many buckets here. And I also want to say that when I ask that question, I don't mean to be asking, are you done? I mean to be saying that have and are working, but that you are still achieving because I think all of us in the Lyme world, we're still achieving. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's obviously just an ongoing project. It's not. Yeah, um, that's, by the way, Rich, you mentioned early up um, the idea that, you know, you mean the 10 day course of antibiotic isn't it? Like, I'm not better. I I mean, that was, that was mind blowing to me that, you know, I remember Dr. Phillips saying to me, I think we're going to get you back on your feet in, it's going to, you know, probably two years and you're going to be there. And I just couldn't even adjust my brain back then. And that was years ago. So, um, Daisy, the things that have helped, um, I want to talk first about the depression front, because when you're depressed, um, no matter how brilliant or accomplished you are, depression is a monster. Um, you could be at the height of your life and get a repeated message. Thank you, possibly Bartonella, that you really should kill yourself, that the world would be probably a little bit better if you were not in it. I myself have had that compulsion. In fact, as I watch these famous people, you know, out of nowhere, they, you know, take their lives. I I always wonder if Lyme played, you know, played a component, um, So I think that the most important thing to tackle in my life was that extreme depression, treatment resistant depression, to be specific in my own case. Um, And then I think, you know, for the for the 
one of my children, um, the, the word was bipolar. I don't, these are all just like words, you know, to describe symptoms. And so I'm nervous about sort of the labels, but after trying virtually every um, neuropsych, you know, every SSRI um, and mood stabilizer. I can attest to that. <laughs> I mean, every, every single one of them. I'm currently holding steady myself on, um, it's a, it's a cream of, um, ox, Daisy, you help me here. Oxy, oxytocin. It's oxytocin cream. It's, it's that simple oxytocin cream and it's very concentrated. So I think it's a little bit higher of a dose than what you would get. I think you can get like oxytocin nasal spray on Amazon. This is a higher concentration of it. I rub that cream on, into my skin every day. And um, I'm currently taking um, maybe like a, a, a very, very, it's a, I'm very sensitive. So I can only take pediatric doses of anything. I mean, I take, I, I microdose rifampin. Like everyone's microdosing mushrooms. I'm, I'm, I'm micro, microdosing rifampin. I'm microdosing methylene blue. Like, yeah. I, I, yeah, and Daisy knows I, I can't, I just very sensitive. I can't handle a lot, but I need to keep going. And this is when I say you make adjustments, you know, we've, um, so uh, finding for the kids, you know, for one of my kids, we went through Abilify and Latuda. And um, even now I'm not, I, I'm nervous that the, I think, you know, she's worried the Lamictal may be giving her a rash, you know, we're always on it, but um, I am myself um, uh, encouraging of, of pharmaceutical intervention or other intervention for depression because it can end in your death and the world needs you. And um, there is not a, um, like you don't sort of win an award if you muscle it through without. And so I do, I do encourage, like there's sort of a stigma around it, especially parents with their children. I know kids with the most horrifying anxiety and their kids are like, well, we're not gonna do the Prozac thing. And I think, well, I mean, would you rather have a dead kid? I mean, you know, it's like, are they, they're not aware that the suicide rate is the highest it has ever been ever for our teens and our young adults. I mean, they're, they're killing themselves. So that was Daisy, obviously, like I just had to start right there. You have to get that neuropsych piece. And by the way, there are many nights where I cannot sleep unless I take Ambien. Um, last night I, I didn't sleep with it. That's because I cross time zones so much. Um, <laughs> I travel a ton for work. So, um, I know that if I don't get enough sleep, I, I just crumble. Um, I've tried peptides lately that I think are really an interesting direction to go in. They're kind of like a, like a new area and I can't really say what they're doing entirely, but I feel really good. Um, um, what are the treatments? Something interesting for my children was, um, something off the internet called Lyme Sode. Lyme Nozode. Lyme Nozode. Lyme Nozode, Japanese knotweed. You know, these are kind of tried and true. Um, I take a lot of supplements. I take, I also take like things like 
you know, again, this people might have like a stigma around it. I take Valtrex uh, every day. And um, because I know that these infections, you know, trigger all those um, HPV infections. Um, I take that, I take, um, I mean, Daisy, you can help me here. It right. What's going on? What, you, what you, you did SOT. I did. I did SOT. Um, I will. I will. I have to let you know how that's going. You know, like I said, I I I um had a very high Epstein bar reactivation after I had COVID. By the way, after I got COVID, unfortunately, uh, my blood thickened, so I became uh, kind of stroke risk. Um, I take Boluki every day. Um, and sometimes I add lumbrukinase. Both of them are available on Amazon. I take various um, phospholipids. Um, um, you had a tonsillectomy? I had a tonsillectomy. I also had cavitation surgery. Um, you know, I, 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 I really like the only thing that I, not the only thing, I haven't tried ozone therapy yet, and I've heard great things about it. I'm about to try for the first time IVIG, and um, one of my children has benefited enormously from IVIG, um, in, intravenous gamma. Can you tell me what is it? Uh, Immunoglobulin. Intravenous immunoglobulin. Um, and you've, tr you've tried IV antibiotics? I've tried IV antibiotics. Some of them, you know, were too much for me. Some of them, like I said, the so literally cured my spastic bladder, which is a horribly painful thing to live with. I mean, I was, you know, curled up in a ball over that one, just thinking I can't live another minute with this pain. Um, I always am supporting my gut and I am largely, um, you know, the dairy, gluten, low sugar lifestyle, except I'm not militant. And that's also a big piece for me about sort of what things have helped. Um, yoga has helped a lot, regular, exercise has helped a lot. Um, getting rid of haters has helped a ton. Surrounding myself with love, um, finding allies. I mean, having a partner, in my case, Daisy is my partner. And in other cases, I am the partner. I companion others, but this is a scary road with so much uncertainty in it. And then, you know, just when you recover from one thing, like, oh, my hair finally has grown back after it's got sort of fallen out in handfuls. You know, you're like, oh, my hair is great, but um, now my now my abdomen is, now I have Bell's palsy of the gut. You, you know, you've gotta be kidding me. You know, and sometimes I have to vent. And so having a person to vent to who maybe isn't your husband or your mom or something like, you know, just, just someone outside who really can get it. Um, it's been part of the healing as 
like along with all of the things I've tried and that I will continue to try and I'm tireless and I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm brave, you know, I'll, I'll give it a go. You are brave. You are brave. Well, that's certainly a good list of things that you've tried. Um, and I'm very excited to hear Rich um, lead you through your transformation and uh, his final question to you. Thanks, so let's, let's pick up on a couple of things that were really, uh, I think, uh, implied here, but, but I want to build out a little bit with you, right? So when, uh, when you and I last uh, uh, spoke on this podcast, we talked a little bit about teams. You had said to me, you need to build out a team. Right, you uh, and you need to have a diverse team, and you have to have a lot of people who are going to be giving you input. Um, and you did reference that you're working with Daisy. Uh, and uh, one of the things that we as East Coasters, you and I, Isabel, probably never heard of were coaches, health coaches, Lyme coaches. We never heard of coaches, right? And I can tell you that when when I first started hearing about coaches, you know, two and a half years ago when we started this podcast, I raised my brow and I was like, "What are they?" You know, and and, and who would ever want to use them? And now, you know, now we see how, you know, we see the beauty of, of, um, of this group of people like the, you know, the beautiful Daisy White, who, um, who are filling that gap for us, where they're doing two really important things. The first thing that they're doing for us um, is they become the person who's helping us through this journey, because what we all know, as we study the hero's journey, is we always find a mentor. A mentor always takes us on this journey. And then when we get to the end of our journey, we have our second journey. We become the mentors for other people. And you two beautifully describe that process that we all go on this hero's journey, right? But we really need someone to take us. We need our Yoda to take us through this journey if we're going to have that shortcut. And, and that's the first thing that we have with really good coaches like the Daisy Whites. Um, now, the, the, the second piece of this is um is of course they fill that gap for us not only the, the yoda who's taking us on this journey this 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 person who's leading us that we find on our hero's journeys but they're also helping us to negotiate this very complex system of when we have to pivot who we should be working with when we should be pushing a little bit harder meaning maybe we shouldn't be babying ourselves but maybe we shouldn't be gritting it out, right? We need somebody to lead us on it. So you can talk to us about how Daisy has been a, a vital part of this plan. And as an East Coaster, you weren't accustomed to uh, to having people like Daisy available to you. Uh, well, I, I had definitely never, ever heard of, of, a, of a health coach um, or a, even it's a quite popular now to have like a, a health concierge. Um, and I... Um, I mean, I just didn't even know where to turn when I came out here. I didn't, um, my neighbor down the road told me about Daisy, but um, Daisy came to me also through um, the, uh, the, one of the, the, the ghost writer or the co the writer with Yolanda Hadid on her book um, happened to be my cousin's fiance. So there was sort of double roads that led from me to, to Daisy. Um, and I think that it's like a growing industry. And um, if you don't have a health coach, 
I definitely recommend having a designated friend, like somebody who's in agreement to be um, like the recipient of your terror and sadness um, as you work through grief and anger um, or to celebrate victories that sort of like somebody not on the journey wouldn't understand, you know, would my girlfriend who doesn't, you know, share my, my issues understand that I recently realized that by not eating steak, um, grilled meat, um, the, the horrible bloat finally settled down. I was so thrilled. Like who cares? <laughs> Nobody cares. You know what though? Like, but I was able to call Daisy and say, Daisy, oh my God, you're not going to believe this because I thought that I had made this miraculous realization that the paleo diet is, is the answer for me, you know, but it was, I, then it was not the answer. And I found this new thing, you know, but who are you going to celebrate those, those victories with who can understand the significance of those victories so that's that is sort of a a reason that uh well first of all it's hard to navigate all these things it's so confusing when you're really sick and your brain is is not functioning well you can't even understand what's coming at you and often you're managing it's it's not like in my case and with the population that i work with with mothers against lyme there's so much happening they have a child who maybe has a feeding tube or can't swallow, has Tourette's, you know, severe OCD because they have pants pandas. The, uh, you know, the strep is in their across the blood brain barrier. They're, um, they themselves are exhausted. Uh, they are dizzy or they have ringing in their ears. They're too tired to cook. Their child has autism spectrum disorder. They, they don't even know what school can accommodate them. And um, they um, and their house has mold, and they also have to decide whether to pay for um, an hygienics test or to pay their rent. And then they're supposed to negotiate. I mean, IVI what? I'm sorry. What is an even infrared sauna? Like, is that what? Is that a is that like an outfit? What, what is, what do you, what is that? You know, like there's too much and, and, and you need, you need the guide. You just need someone aside who, who's not as close to it as you, or possibly your spouse or your best friend, you know, just can kind of say, all right, look, you know, we're not going to tackle everything at once. So we are, you know, I hate to sound like the reductive doctor, you know, who said you could only have one problem at once, but in fact, there's such a nonsense, there's such a, a tidal wave that you do have to sort of say, all right, deep breath. Yeah, you, you, you need your guide, right? Because, because there are a number of different challenges that people have, even under the best of circumstances, we have an acute care system and you have a chronic illness. You, you're, you're being introduced to a new community that has its own language. You need to find people who can understand you and you need somebody to coach you. And you know, there's, there's, there's no team that has a coach that, that doesn't have a coach that's gonna be successful. If you were if you were building a football team or a softball team, um, you would you would have a coach, right? And it's the same thing when you're going on a journey like this that you that you need someone to help you and coach you through these challenges. To be again, use the the the, uh, the Star Wars metaphor, you need your Yoda to help you, you know, to get through this. In a, in a funny way, I suddenly realized Daisy that it's probably the work with you 
though ours was um, kind of a family journey with you, the work that I'm doing um, with my mother's, I, I can't do what Daisy does. I mean, she's literally helping me make doctor's appointments um, and as the liaison and, and you know, does a, just God's work uh, entirely. But um, again, you know, you it, there is a cost to it. And a lot of the people that I'm working with just can't afford it. It's not going to be an option for them. But, you know, within the community itself, in these groups, and I know that I have a group, but that there are many groups. So I'm saying it's my group, but like a group, people are helping each other. People are playing for that. Sure. You know, I, I just know because people in my group say like, oh, in my other group, you know, and so you, you go looking and you, you can even find that person. You That's why I always just say like, I don't want anyone to ever think, oh, Isabel has Daisy, but I don't have Daisy. I'll never get well. Um, you know, but that 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 isn't true, because you can find that that system. You can find that support. Well, sure, right. I mean, look, there there are a number of different resources, and we, you know, this will be another conversation. But certainly, we here at Sick Boot Camp want Daisy to scale herself and start to train other people, so we can have more Daisies. But we'll, you know, we'll, that's a conversation for another day. Um, but there are a number of different resources like this podcast, right? I mean, what, the reason we do this podcast is we want people to have different tools available to them so they can get the support and they can find the people that might be able to help them. They can learn the language. They can, you know, they can, they, they can find people who speak to them and then they can find their shortcuts, right? And one of the things that was beautiful about the conversation you and Daisy were having is you were sharing your shortcuts. You were sharing your tips and trips, right? Because in the end, when you look back at your journey, there were things that you would have done differently had you, if you had the opportunity to do it again. And all the things that you would have done differently, now the people who listen to this podcast can now learn from those from those lessons, right? So that's, and, and again, it's, it's, it's a quilt. We have to have a whole set of people who are now becoming leaders, which is now what you're, you've become in this community, not because you're doing this podcast and you, you have really blessed us and the people who are listening to us by sharing your journey, but also with the other work you're doing. So let's talk about the beauty of Lyme, right? Let's talk about how Lyme disease has put you in a position where all of these constructs that you walked around with, whether they be cultural or social or educational, that you were walking around with. Lyme gives you an opportunity to strip off all of that away and to really find your essence and really find your talents and your gifts. And you shared a little bit about um, some of those things that you found. You said, for example, you know, that you were the person who was uniquely qualified with your gifts to do the work you're doing with Mothers Against Lyme. So talk about how you discovered that about yourself and how that call was something you now answered. Um, I... I think from childhood, um, like I was even sick. I was the class president and the camp team captain. And um, so uh, I think leadership is the, is sort of the personality trait. And it's hard to know how leadership plays a role in your life after you leave an arena where there are clear leadership opportunities, you know, do you run for office? You know, what do you, what is, what does it mean? Or you lead a company, but I was aware that I had these skills. And also um, I did mention that I'm from a traditional Jewish family. So a particular Jewish value that I was heavily steeped in, it's called tikkun olam. And um, 
the idea is that it's uh, you are your sort of core of our religion is to repair the world. So, or doing mitzvah type of work. So that's really uh, a core part of like the, the foundations of my, uh, just my basic ethos that what makes me, me. Um, and uh, I, 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 and somehow, um, I was, I was, uh, somehow I ended up have a generation Lime project Lime had, um, was doing support groups for, uh, people in their twenties called generation Lime. So any listeners who are in that age group, um, should definitely check out, uh, generation Lime. They're no longer a part of project Lime. They stand on their own, but they have, I think podcasts definitely, I mean, uh, support groups five days a week for sure. If not more, they're on Instagram, um, and I thought there, hey, uh, maybe we should just try a mother's meetup, you know, because because uh, I was, you know, I was making some speeches. Uh, I was speaking, you know, I, I, I'm a writer and I'm a public speaker. I started uh, being asked to speak publicly at the time when I was supporting my younger journey, uh, my younger child on her gender journey. I, I accidentally ended up as a kind of a public speaker supporting those kids um, and the reality of their existence and um, sort of publicly being a mom saying, I love my kid. And so I learned that I could do this. So I was doing public speaking and um, except you don't get to speak publicly very often, do you? You know, you need to have a, a podium and an event, but uh, the essence was sharing ideas. So I said, hey, why don't we do a mother's meetup and see what happens? And what was, first of all, the first meeting, I just thought maybe we'll have like a couple, maybe five or six people, except the first meeting, 75 women signed up. Wow. Um, and I, I mean, I, all I could do was just ask their names. So in, in fact, what I learned was that in addition to being a good speaker, I discovered that I, I'm a good listener too. And that listening was as healing in many ways as um, any words I might say that, um, you know, I, I, I'm suddenly feeling a little um, choked up when I think about what I'm pr privileged to hear. You as a podcast um, host know this experience to hear someone else's struggle who to let them know they are not alone um in some cases i have to be the bearer of bad news uh, especially for uh, women who want to get pregnant or who sometimes are pregnant i i i you know i have to sometimes share horrifying news that there are no guidelines at the moment that you know we have ways to go. i sometimes have to ask people like the best thing to do is to call your representative, you know, but mostly connecting with other people, hearing, loving them, doing the opposite of gaslighting, just saying, yeah, you know, you, you, you are, I, I've even had women in the group who have said, 
like I, I'll always just say, what's on your mind today? What's led you to the group? And I've had one woman who said, I'm here because I hate my daughter. Her disease has ruined my life, ruined my marriage. Uh, you know, and, and I said, and she said, I'm so mortified. I'm so mortified. And I said, you've come to the right place to express that, you know, it's not, you're, you're not a monster. That is an emotion that we feel in, you know, it's certainly better to say it here in this group than to tell your daughter or your, you know, cause she doesn't really hate her daughter, you know, but she needed a place that was a place to say something that everybody acknowledged or unacknowledged has had a moment, you know, because of the fear that we live with, because of the helplessness that we live with. How do you channel the helplessness? What if I never cure my kid or my, what, you know, there's all of that doubt. And, you know, that's why we, you know, I was joking in the beginning of the show, how I accidentally just started singing at the end of, um, you know, one of my meetings and everybody ended up laughing, you know, smiling. Gosh, to take a group on that journey or when we end with the serenity prayer, which we often do just, you know, gosh, it's worked for AA for years. So I figured I'll just throw that one in, you know, and um, to, to end knowing you're not alone is um, and that people, people maybe have ideas you haven't thought of yet. It is so healing. I actually feel that this year, um, I just made a little infomercial for the Project Lyme Gala about congenital Lyme disease. It was beautiful, by the way, folks. I, I did have a chance to preview it, and uh, I can't wait until the rest of you have an opportunity to see it. It's really, really a beautiful uh, uh, video. I think um, bringing that one particular aspect to light you know, congenital syphilis was once the scourge, you know, and Borrelia, of course, is very similar to a syphilis spirochete. And I don't know why, you know, the first report of congenital Lyme was in 1985. So I, this isn't sort of some new newsflash, but, but the CDC has on their website, you know, wonderfully, they acknowledge that congenital Lyme is a reality. The one piece, and I don't blame them for doing this since they don't have enough data, but they, they report that it's rare. And my, my worry about that word, which I, of course, understand why it's there, but um, I'm not seeing that it's very rare on my pod, on my uh, support group. I'd say that 80% of the women in my support group, week after week after week, report passing Lyme disease on to their Lyme, Bartonella, Babesia, their infections onto their children in utero with, with occasionally catastrophic and at the very mildest, terrible consequences, lifelong consequences. And um, I'm really hoping that, that we get some guidelines and, and sp specifically guidelines about treating during pregnancy. You know, how do you treat a, a baby that may have been infected in utero? How do you test a mother? Because the uh, diagnostics may have to change, you know, your body ch changes in pregnancy. So I'm, I'm greatly concerned for that population. Um, and I don't have great news on that one, but, but still, um, 
you know, the making of that video, it's, it's, it's funny. Um, and the leading of these groups helped me finally come out of a state of shock that I think I went into when I heard the sonogram technician say there's a problem. There's been a failure to thrive. I think I went into a 14 year state of shock. And through community, I healed. I, you know, you just feel it. And then you have no other, other course but to give. I, I want to thank you for being a leader in, in the, uh, in the uh, Mothers Against Lyme community because it really is an important community. And I didn't understand how important it was until uh, we were recently asked to write a review about a soon-to-be-published memoir that was written by a, a mother who was, uh, was a guest on this podcast. And I'm not going to share a whole lot uh, about that because you know the, the memoir is not yet released. Uh, but one of the things that I found to be really painful when I was reading the book before writing the review was, uh, was that this person was truly alone. Um, her mother thought she was crazy. Her sister thought she was crazy. Her husband, who's a good man, who's a really good man, was constantly doubting her and questioning her. And even her children, who she was working to treat, were doubting her. But in the face of all that doubt, and in that face of, uh, of all that lack of support, she ultimately did triumph. And she was ultimately successful in assisting her child to go from, from being very, very sick to being uh, to being unbelievably successful and and and, and independent. So I can't wait till that happens, but it is really important because moms are so often alone on this journey and not even supported by their children's father in many cases. So let me ask you about that, Isabel, because it's one of the things we've, we've observed, not only just on this podcast, uh, where we've had very few dads on this podcast, but another observation that Matt and I have made is that we, you know, we have had thousands of people from around the world reach out to us. And early on in our journey, we had the opportunity to have uh, Zooms with folks. Uh, we Unfortunately, we're just too overwhelmed now to be able to do that. But only on one occasion did we have a dad call us and reach out and ask us if we would give advice. Uh, the 99% of all the other people who had, you know, who had reached out to us and asked us if we'd be willing to speak with them or meet with them were moms. So why is it that moms are um, A, isolated in this, um, in this journey in so many cases, and B, why are they so aggressively advocating for their children and not getting support uh, from uh, their children's uh, fathers? Well, I, I mean, you only have to look at a, a pride of lionesses to know that we are genetically programmed through millions of years of um, coding to ensure the survival of our pride of our children. And, um, you know, it's the women who are taking down the water buffalo, usually. It's, I think the men are, you know, they're like on a rock roaring or napping. Um, and um, they're, they're necessary. I mean, we love our, we love our, our lions. Um, no disrespect men. And I've met some unbelievable um, dads 
and 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 also men who are sick and come forward and talk about it why why so many are unsupportive um maybe it's an issue of of that sort of patri you know kind of patriarchal mindset it's not manly you know chronic disease isn't sort of manly or it's inconvenient you know it's it bogs us down and men are kind of like, you know, moving forward whereas women were the traditional you know the gatherers um that more often than not the women are giving up their careers and the men are sort of considered the um the more important sort of asset um but you know of, of course oh my gosh there's so many women who are just you know working sick and have a sick kid it's going to take a shift that um, it's actually going to be up to up to the people raising the next generation. It's certainly not coming from our all of our leaders. Um, maybe in in eras past, we looked towards um, our our civic leaders to teach us these things, or maybe our pastor or our rabbi or our yoga instructors, I, I don't know, but how to live with compassion and trust. Um, it's, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be person by person. And um, the men who are unsupportive and the women, I, um, again, this is, you know, very hard to to talk about, but I think important to talk about. Um, there have there have been family family members, you know, who who ha um, maybe past family members who have just thought I was a lunatic, as you you mentioned this woman. Um, I mean, it, it just hit me hard. Um, and um, in fact, I I'm pretty sure that Daisy's been with me when I've sobbed. Um, um, at um, the names I've either been called to my face or that have come back to me that people even ha haven't said to my face, but behind my back, I just know everybody is talking about it. You know, I think that um, if we are calm in our resolve and the way we communicate to our spouses, that may help. You know, sometimes when you're sick, you become hysterical. I hate that. I hate that word, but that you become desperate. You're you're vulnerable, and you can't get answers. Your voice may get higher. You may, you know, you're so that idea is, you know, my wife is hysterical, and like they just slam the door, or you know, maybe if we can find it in ourselves to say, um, you keep calling me crazy. And I don't think that that's very productive because there's clearly something wrong. My, my research on my own leads me to conclude that this is what the problem is. And it would be really great if, even if we're not on the same page, if you could refrain from denigrating comments because nobody's going to get healthy that way. Maybe if we can gain that language, we will uh, liberate ourselves from that experience of, of being a, um, occasionally abused 
is the right word, but but disrespected. So let's, well, let, me, let me bring it back to another part of the conversation we had before we before we um, come to our final question, and that is, um, you know, one of the things we've seen often in in this uh, podcast is the downstream effect of gaslighting. You and I had a, a very powerful conversation about uh, the, the gaslighting that you've had to face uh, from doctors. And one of the downstream effects of, of medical gaslighting is in many cases, it puts fathers in a position where um, they think they have evidence before them that you know, their child is not sick. That they're that that the you know the um, way that uh, their their child's mother or partner is responding to the child is not consistent with the data that they have from these healthcare professionals that we trust. So you can can you talk a little bit about how the downstream effect of gaslighting from medical doctors is not only having an impact in, uh, impact on us as patients, but it's also having an impact on those of you who are parenting and trying to get to a place where you are listening to your child, you believe your child, you're trying to come up with solutions for your child in the face of your child being gaslit and how that gaslighting is now impacting your capacity to gain the support you need from your child's father. Here's the thing, this is, this is a really common situation. And, um, I'm sad to report that many marriages implode under the strain. Mm -hmm. um, and um, the other thing is that children from a young age, if they're gaslit, become, um, they suffer from really bad, low self-esteem, depression, anxiety, like it's all exacerbated because they're not, not believed. I, don't know why this is. This is, um, yeah, I've been asked this a lot uh, because I supported a, a gender um, atypical child. You know, why did I believe, how could I believe someone if they're two years old who says that they're, you know, a girl and not a boy, you know, how could you even believe them? You know, I don't, I'm I'm not I'm not you know if there if there's just like persistence on your child's part um of certain behavior I'm not really clear what you gain by by not supporting them you know like I I don't I'm not sure like is there an upside to repression or suppression and you know it seems very old fashioned to um you know father knows best to just say it seems like you know what or doctor uh, knows best or doctor knows best, you know, it's, it's just, um, I think that it's so important to, I, I said that I learned so much in the support group that I could listen, listening and, and, and observing is so important. Maybe, maybe men are, are busy, like watching the evening news or distracted by their work commitments. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Um, or, or their, or, or their cognition is being controlled by the mindset that's being created by the gaslighting from the medical community. My, if I could sort of have one wish come true, I would um, like tour medical schools <laughs> and get all of these young doctors and just talk about this so that they could stop rolling. It's like the eye rolling. I, if I, if I, in the face of this. It's such, it's such a life hijack. 
Um, it's so hard without the gaslighting. Um, it just it just would be so amazing. Um, and it's it's like I I think that one of my next goals as a as an advocate will be um, following Project Lime's lead here in in public's public service announcements. You know, it's it's going to be like a media campaign. Um, I think about it all the time. How can we combat this? It's not just in the Lyme world, you know, it's, and it's, um, we have, we have big problems and, and, and it's going to be hard for any one sole person to handle it. You said, you know, you're just so deluged with people uh, who are interested in your podcast. I mean, you can't even interview them all or respond to them all much as you wish you could. And then in that sense, we have to trust that we are part of a community and that the members are, are, are sort of self-selecting. Like I said, I'm best a consumer. Bonnie Crater is great at organizing a fly-in to Congress, boy. You know, she's a, a, a force to be reckoned with. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and we have we have the duty to encourage other people and to train other people to become leaders. As we talked about, our second journey is to serve the community by scaling and encouraging others. Right. And that's that's some of what we do here at Tech Bootcamp. We, we are constantly encouraging folks to start their own podcast. And several of the folks that we've that we've uh, encouraged and, and supported um, have done that and they're doing great work. Right. And the same thing, Daisy is encouraging people to become, you know, advocates in the same way that she is. And now you're in a position where you can begin to now, um, you know, support and develop. I think the most important people in this journey, uh, you know, in this community, which are moms. Right. And I, and I do have some good news for you. I, I don't want to end this podcast on a somber note, I want to end it on a very positive note, right? Okay. And there are a couple of things that I do want to share with you about the observations we've made here on Tick Bootcamp, right? Uh, one of the things that we found really sad at one point um, on this journey is we interviewed Dr. Alan McDonald, who is one of our favorite people in the community. And Dr. McDonald actually proved that uh, congenital Lyme existed in the, in the uh, actually uh, 1970s and the early 1980s. Um, and he was talking about gaslit. He was gaslit by uh, one of the leaders at that time in the um, in the medical community from Yale University, interestingly, uh, who suggested that he was actually doctoring his data. He gave a he gave a presentation in Vienna uh, with proof, which he called the dead baby study, where he was able to show that that um, that babies were dying in utero as a result of of, of of contracting Lyme disease. And when he tested these these fetus, he demonstrated that they had Lyme disease, right? And, and he was accused of doctoring that data in the 70s and 80s. That's where we were. Now let's fast forward to now 2022. Dr. McDonald, who wasn't able to get his papers published in, in, in the um, you know, late 70s and early 80s, is now being given access to all of the major medical journals, and he's publishing his findings that couldn't see the light of day. Because he's able to publish these findings, they are now becoming uh, the standard of care, which is now being developed around this, right? Second thing that I think is really exciting is there are a lot of moms like you and Daisy who are doing great work in this community, two of whom are running foundations that are giving grants, right? Live Line Foundation and Lime Life Foundation. And they've been able to look at the data that's available through their foundations. And they've been able to uh, demonstrate convincingly that 
that uh, 50% of their grant recipients are congenital Lyme patients, right? Yeah. So, we're, so we're getting anecdotal proof, we're getting research proof, and now we're starting to see changes in, in, you know, in the CDC. And yes, I know you're not happy that uh, you know, the CDC in their, uh, you know, in their language has indicated that uh, congenital Lyme is real but rare and, you know, or something to that effect. But before, you know, the brilliant founder of, uh, of the Live Lyme Foundation, um, you know, became as active as she did and was able to get access to the CDC and the NIH, the, you know, what, what the language was that congenital Lyme disease um, is not, does not exist, right? But we're now starting to see these changes happen very quickly. And, and, in, and, and the last piece I want to share with you in, in, in our community is that it is universally accepted in this community that a downstream effect of, of a tick bite is congenital Lyme disease. It is universally accepted in this community yeah. that, um, that um, um, Lyme is sexually transmitted and it is universally accepted in this community that um, that you can get Lyme disease from a blood transfusion. So, you know, now science is going to catch up with all of that, but the people who are in this community and who are who are living this are, um, are, 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 are now universally accepting these truths that there is an upstream and downstream effect of Lyme disease. And it's one of the reasons why we have this explosion. And the good news is now people, because they're learning that and accepting that are learning how to take steps to protect themselves. And there are many young women who have come on this podcast and have, and have, have uh, talked about the protocols that they've developed so that they can be healthy and have healthy children. And we've now witnessed many of those young women who were on our podcast before they had children now have healthy children as a result of going through protocols where they, where they went through a process of prehabilitating before they got pregnant using certain types of uh, antibiotic therapies and other types of therapies to put themselves in a position where they can have healthy children. And several of them are, again, active on social media and demonstrating that this is possible. So this is where we're getting to. It's been a long haul. It's been a painful haul, but there's huge reason to be be hopeful and to expect that uh, that we are going to develop protocols that are going to allow women to uh, to be re reproductively healthy despite um, having a Lyme disease journey, whether theirs themselves is congenital or as a result of uh, of an upstream tick bite. So um, I would be remiss if I didn't point all that out because I am really hopeful and I do believe that we're going to be in a good place. Again, because of wonderful people like you and Daisy and so many others who are doing great work as moms in this community. So now I get to ask my final question, Isabel, because that's what I get to do. And this is something I've never asked anyone to do, but you, uh, you, you did share with us that one of the things that you do as a, you know, as a, as a singer is that you sing out your, your, your meetings so that people could leave with a smile. And I'm going to ask you to do that for us today um, <laughs> uh, because I, I, I want everyone, I want everyone to leave this podcast uh, with, uh, with a smile. So, um, as the uh, as the singer songwriter that you are, can you please share with us? Um, can you share with us a, a, a song as as a, as a as a way of winding down? Let's the see. This is um, this is one that I share with my group and I sing with my group. <laughs> Listen as your day unfolds. Challenge what the future holds. Try and keep your head up to the sky. Lovers, they may cause you tears. Go ahead, 
release your fears, stand up and be counted. Don't be ashamed to cry. You gotta be, you gotta be bad. You gotta be bold. You gotta be wiser. You gotta be hard. You gotta be tough. You gotta be stronger. You gotta be cool. You gotta be calm. You gotta stay together. All I know, all I know, love will save the day. <laughs> Sometimes I sing that with my with my ladies. I wish love was enough to save the day, but I do think that research science. And by the way, I'm going to add one person. You mentioned Phyllis. You mentioned um, Phyllis Bedford, Holiday Goudreau, and Olivia um, um, Live Lime Limelight. There's a woman in in Canada who is my hero, and her name is Sue Faber from Lime Hope. Um, and she's just a, just a force to be reckoned with. Um, you know, like those women are my heroes and, and I hope my partners. And, um, and then the last thing is probably if I, uh, I know that I'm recovered because I'm singing again. So that's a sign for you because there's nothing that lifts me up more than song. So I'm happy to share it with you. Thank you for listening to our Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Isabel Rose. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Isabel Rose, visit her Instagram at IsabelRose19. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media, on all your social media outlets. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com slash to view the blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. To get your automatic episode updates of your Tick Bootcamp podcast, please take a minute to leave us an honest review on your podcast platform of choice. And finally, if you'd like to search our podcast library of almost 350 episodes, subscribe to our email list or share feedback, please visit our website at tickbootcamp.com. And thank you always for listening. And I send a big hug to all of you in our community at large.